BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The legends are true. Overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! And participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Friday, August 8th, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week, we bring you a new, in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash inquiringmindspodcast. And you can subscribe to the show if you don't already on iTunes, Stitcher, or any other podcasting app. And I wanted to let you know that this episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by Audible.com. They are a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles to choose from. And exclusively for listeners to this episode, Audible has a great offer, a free audiobook. Yep, totally free. You just have to go to this specific URL to get it audiblepodcast.com slash inquiring minds. Once again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiring minds. This week, I interviewed David Cassaret. He's a physician, researcher, and tenured professor at UPenn School of Medicine. He's published more than 100 articles and book chapters in leading medical journals, and he's the real deal. He's just released a book called Shocked, Documenting the History and State of the Art of Resuscitation, essentially bringing people back from the dead. It's a fascinating read, and it quickly calls into question the very notion of death, what it means to be dead. And it turns out that the line between life and death is much blurrier than we might think. Here's a clip from the interview. I notice as I talk to both researchers and emergency room physicians and paramedics in writing this book, that a lot of people I talk to would use these air quotes as they talk about somebody who's dead. They would talk about a patient who comes into the emergency room, hasn't had a pulse for a half an hour. They'd say that person is quote unquote dead until we brought them back. And there's this weird sort of uncertainty, I think, in a lot of people who work in this area as researchers, but especially as clinicians. They're not quite sure what to make of these patients who are and look, appear to be dead for periods of half an hour, an hour or more, but are are eventually revived. So Chris, what do you think? Well, I just hearing that I was thinking about how many crappy movies you could make premised on that statement alone. And in every one of them, the person who comes back from the dead would suddenly have a paranormal ability like the ability to see ghosts. But what's great about your interview is that we don't need that here because the science he's talking about is more than fascinating enough. Yeah, it's amazing how much the research has changed in terms of how we approach resuscitation uh, and how that affects even how we define what it means to be alive or dead. 
So that will be our interview for today. But first, we have a guest with us for the first part of the show, and I would like to introduce her. So I have known Tara Smith for a long time, going back to the very early days of the Science Blogs Network. She is both a science blogger, and her blog is Etiology, and also an epidemiologist who studies infectious diseases at Kent State University. And at a time when we have the worst outbreak of Ebola ever, and people are terrified of it being in the United States, well, she actually wrote a book about Ebola, which is entitled Ebola and Marburg Viruses, published by Chelsea House in its Deadly Diseases and Epidemics series. So I couldn't think of someone better to have on the talk about it. So Tara, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to have you. So on your blog recently, you wrote the following. You said, as an infectious disease specialist and one with an extreme interest in Ebola, I'm way more concerned about influenza or measles uh, and many other ordinary viruses than I am about Ebola. What did you mean by that? You know, influenza is a disease that really doesn't scare people, but it kills twenty to 30,000 people in the United States every single year. Ebola, all told, has killed about 2,500 people worldwide since 1976. So when I think about diseases that are deadly, that are highly contagious, Ebola is way down the list, and influenza and measles are much, much higher. But everybody's watching uh, this, this current outbreak, uh, and I guess they're, they are saying it's the worst, and I was hearing uh, in one, one NPR show, people are wor- worrying about whether, if it keeps going, whether it could mutate and become something more dangerous. It's concerning. It, it, it is the largest by far. Um, most of the Ebola outbreaks we've seen have maxed out at about 400 cases. Um, the typical ones in the last decade or so have only been about 50 cases. So this one and now is up to over 1,600 cases and about 800 to 900 deaths. So it is huge for an Ebola outbreak. But, you know, Ebola outbreaks are typically small anyway. So it's concerning for the people in, in the countries that are affected in West Africa. It's concerning for travelers there. But, you know, here in the United States, I'm not concerned about it. And we've not seen any evidence that this Ebola strain, which is the um, Zaire strain, can mutate into something that's efficiently airborne. So the thing that worries me about this virus is that, you know, it's the mortality rate is very high. Uh, you know, it's 50%, it seems, from those numbers that you just suggested. Uh, and it seems to be, from my reading, increasing, uh, that, you know, the mortality rate is is high and increasing. And it people who are otherwise healthy are dying. So when I think about people who die from influenza, I think about people who are immune compromised, you know, small babies, pregnant women, the elderly, people in cancer treatments, etc. But if I got uh, the flu, I probably wouldn't die from it. If I got Ebola, it looks like I have a 50% chance of dying from it. That's pretty scary. It is. And, and that's one of the reasons why Ebola gets so much attention um, is because its mortality rate is one of the highest uh, viruses that we know of. But um, I mean, even if with influenza, young and healthy people can and do die from flu infections. Um, it's rare, but it does happen. And you're much more likely to be exposed to that than you are to be exposed to Ebola. So even though the death rate is very high, remember that this is also taking place in countries that have very poor healthcare systems. Even the people working over there right now don't have the type of protection that you would see that you know people are using at like Emory um, treating the Ebola patients that were brought here. So, you know, there are many reasons that the death rate is very high there. And if you brought that into the United States, even if you had an Ebola outbreak, odds are that death rate would be much lower. And why is that? Do we know how to treat it? And if we do, why can't we send that treatment where it counts? Mm -hmm. 
treatment is, is still evolving. Um, so typically the treatment has just been really to keep the patients comfortable, keep them hydrated, because one of the things that can be deadly is loss of fluids um, from extreme diarrhea and vomiting. So so those things do make make the disease more treatable, even if it doesn't extremely decrease the, the death rate. Um, here in the U.S., there have been some experimental treatments that have been tried on um, the patients that have been brought here. There's a it's called a monoclonal antibody, um, which basically targets the virus and, and kind of mops it up out of the blood, basically. So those have been tried on the two Americans, and they are improving. Whether that is actually due to the treatment that was given to them or just because they were you know, fairly young and healthy in the first place and brought back to the U.S. for good treatment is it, hard to say. So we really don't know about the effectiveness of that experimental treatment that they've been given, but it's something they're definitely looking for for the future. So in your book, uh, I think I read that we first encountered Ebola in 1976, uh, and before that was the related Marburg virus, which was at least 10 years earlier. Um, so in light of those dates, is it reasonable to think that we should have had these vaccines already um, or these serums already? Yeah, um, it's been difficult because for something like this to get a drug company to you know work on developing treatments for this, for something that has only infected 4,000 people over almost 40 years you can see that there's not going to be a lot of return on investment. So these are the types of, of treatments and, and vaccines that um, academic researchers have looked at and military researchers have looked at. Um, but it really hasn't been a, a big push for a pharmaceutical company to get that out to the market and to do human clinical trials because it is just so rare. Um, mm. So that's been a real difficult sell. Yeah, And yet, I'm sorry, the, the the return on investment, it seems to me that everyone in the whole world is going to want to be vaccinated against Ebola right now. I mean, <laughs> that's a... With vaccines, you always have to weigh, you know, risks and benefits. And, yeah. you know, even though it's it's very, very small, there's always a risk to, to vaccination. And so when you have something that's not even in the United States and even in Africa, it's been very limited in the outbreaks. You know, to get a push to to vaccinate a large swath of the population for something that's so rare, it's it's yeah, it's, it's going to be tough. It sounds like it's a good candidate for the orphan disease model, where you know a company can uh, develop a vaccine for a disease that's very rare, and then use that to sort of buy uh, you know favor from the FDA for a bigger drug or a, you know a different, more marketable disease. Is, is that do you think that Ebola is a candidate for one of these orphan disease protocols? <sighs> I don't know. And I haven't looked um, looked much into that. And I don't know if anyone is pursuing that route or if it will be technically eligible or not. So uh, there have been, because people are so scared, uh, rumors fly around, bad information flies around. And I know you've debunked some of this. So one of them is that people are claiming that Ebola can be airborne. There's no basis to that, I understand. Is that right? There are some experimental studies. Um, one done with pigs. So again, not a human or even a primate model that did show that pigs that were infected with Ebola Zaire could spread it to monkeys that were also housed with them experimentally. Um, there had been a few studies looking at monkey-to-monkey -monkey transmission of Ebola, um, where that has been seen through the air. But looking at the epidemiology of human outbreaks, again, over you know almost 40 years, there's no good evidence that um, anything but really you know close human contact Bloodborne pathogens, um, you know, contact with vomit and feces and things like that. Those are really the things that spreads Ebola. Airborne transmission really just does not seem to be happening in human outbreaks. 
So is it is it more prevalent in Africa because of hygiene issues primarily? Well, Africa um, is where the reservoir species are. So Ebola is a bat virus, um, and it's present in some species of African fruit bats. So that's where it all comes from originally. And then, right, like once it gets into a human, um, either by contact with a, a bat or bat droppings or contact with an animal that has been infected by a bat, like a, you know, a chimpanzee or a gorilla, then that's when it, it takes off in humans. And it can spread because of practices that are common in Africa, like funeral rituals where um, family members will have close contact with, um, with the body as they're kind of ritually cleansing it. So they are in contact with the blood and sometimes feces and other, other body fluids. And then once that happens, you know, it, it can spread very quickly. So in other words, it goes right through your skin. Uh, no, no, it doesn't, no, it doesn't go through the skin. But if you have any cuts or anything, or so um, if you wipe your eyes, you can get it okay. that way. Um, so there's a number of ways that it can, you know, be, um, be transmitted to people um, after that. So what's going to be the solution now? How is this uh, outbreak going to be contained in Africa? Yeah, and that's the million-dollar question. Um, you know, it's really difficult because this is the first time ever that an Ebola outbreak has has spread to more than one country. Um, in 1976, there were actually two concurrent outbreaks, one in Zaire um, and one in Sudan, but those were actually unrelated. They just happened to happen at the same time. Um, this one, of course, has been spreading um, throughout the four countries and now into Nigeria where they've confirmed some additional cases so, I mean, the, the thing that has stopped it in previous outbreaks is really just case finding. So figure out who is infected, look at contacts that they have, try to quarantine them, try to keep people from, you know, leaving the area in fear, from leaving hospitals in fear, um, treating the cases as they come into the hospitals and using good, good sanitary procedures in the hospital. You know, having the doctors and everyone use personal protective equipment, use gloves, use um, full body suits, use masks, things like that. This has been really difficult here just because it has spanned so many countries. These are countries where Ebola has never been seen before. So there's a lot of fear and a lot of, um, again, you know, rumors are, are rife there as well. And there's a lot of stigma with this as well that, um, you know, in some cases, it's thought that Ebola is a curse or um, in some cases, it's thought that doctors are actually spreading this. So it's it's a lot of people that are getting this are going to hiding, um, which which is making it much more difficult to keep it under control. So well, this has been very informative, and thank you thank you for laying it all out. And uh, you know, we turn to you, uh, so we're going to be watching your blog as this as this continues. So Tara, thanks so much for being with us on Inquiring Minds. Thank you very much for having me. And Chris, this just underscores the importance of getting vaccinated from things like the flu and measles, which apparently are much scarier to Tara. Absolutely. Please do vaccinate yourself and your children. Okay, so with that, let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with David Cassaret. Once again, we wanted to remind you that today's episode is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles you can choose from on topics ranging from politics to the classics. Basically, what Audible lets you do is listen to audiobooks wherever and whenever you want to. And especially for listeners to this episode of our show, Audible is offering you a free audiobook. So all you have to do is go to the URL audiblepodcast.com slash inquiring minds. And again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiring minds. And let me make a couple of self-interested Audible recommendations. They have my last book, The Republican Brain. They also have Indre's series of lectures 12 Essential Scientific Concepts. But they also have the book that we're talking about on this show this week, David Cassaret's Shocked, 
Adventures in Bringing Back the Recently Dead, which I personally can highly recommend. It's a morbid topic, but he infuses the book with a lot of humor, so it's a really fun read. So go on over to audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds and get one of these free books. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, David Cassaret. Thanks, it's great to be here. In your recent book, Shocked, Adventures in Bringing Back the Recently Dead, you tackle a topic that is fairly taboo in most circles. So what was it that first got you interested in the topic of the recently deceased? You know, I've actually been interested for a long time. I I tell the story in in more detail in in the book of uh, uh, being in college and preparing to go to medical school and wanting to be an emergency room physician. And the story that that really triggered that ambition in me was the story of Michelle Funk, a a two-and-a-half-year-old girl who essentially died back in the 80s. She was uh, underwater for about an hour. Um, Even after she was pulled from the water, she didn't have a heart rate, didn't have a pulse, wasn't breathing. For a period of about three hours, she was, to all intents and purposes, dead. Um, And then something happened, and her heart started again. Um, the efforts of her rescuers were effective and she was brought back to life and she's now alive and, and doing well. And that story, as I heard it when I was in, in college studying for, for uh, the medical school entrance exams, made me think, wow, think of all the, the neat things that, that medicine could do. And that's, that's what made me want to, to become an emergency room doc when I went to medical school. I've, I've changed since then. I'm a, a hospice doctor now. Um, but that was, for me, my, my first uh, brush with some of the fascination of, of what science can accomplish. So you mentioned that she was dead for about three hours, but clearly not if we think of death as really being final. So Tell me a little bit about the medical definition of death and how that might have changed as the advances in resuscitation techniques have improved. Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I notice as I talk to both researchers and emergency room physicians and paramedics in writing this book, that a lot of people I talk to would use these air quotes as they talk about somebody who's dead. They would talk about a patient who comes into the emergency room, hasn't had a pulse for a half an hour. They'd say that person is quote unquote dead until we brought them back. And there's this weird sort of uncertainty, I think, in a lot of people who work in this area as researchers, but especially as clinicians. They're not quite sure what to make of these patients who are and look, appear to be dead for periods of half an hour, an hour or more, but are are eventually revived. The official definition of, of death uh, is usually one that's based on brain death and absence of, of brain activity. And um, so the, these patients like Michelle Funk probably don't meet that criteria technically. Um, but if you look at them, and I've certainly had enough experience as a physician in emergency rooms to see somebody brought in Um, They land in the emergency room, they're not breathing, they don't have a pulse, they're cold, sometimes they're very cold, there's no sign of movement, there's no sign of of spontaneous activity, and you look at them and you think, well, you know, technical definition of or not, this person really, really looks dead until all of a sudden, with the administration of a few drugs and a a shock to the chest, all of a sudden, they're not, and they're, they're back with us. So that also brings up this idea of, you know, brain death being, okay, so that's the official definition. But 
you know, of course, the brain is very much affected by the death of the other organs, right? So if the heart stops pumping blood, uh, then the brain is, is very quick to begin to die. So in the case of someone like Michelle Funk, you know, did she have lasting brain damage for, you know, after, after three hours of, of her brain not getting oxygen? Well, that's obviously a big concern. And I also tell the story in the book of, of a patient I took care of as a medical student. And this is the patient who got me thinking less about being an emergency room doc and more about being a, a hospice doc. Uh, he, he had a cardiac arrest right in front of me. And I helped the nurses and the physicians um, to bring him back. And we did bring him back. We restarted his heart. We got him to the operating room. Um, but he had such severe brain damage during that cardiac arrest and the ensuing surgery that he never woke up. He spent 18 days in the ICU, was never awake, never able to breathe on his own, was never able to talk or communicate or, or uh, even recognize his family before he finally died. And so that's that's a big concern. We can often restart somebody's heart, but if we don't do it quickly and if we don't do it effectively – the lasting damage in a patient's brain or other organs can be severe. You asked about Michelle Funk. I was not, I deeply regret, able to interview her for this book. I tried reaching out to her. I tried reaching out to one member of her family. Um, and I was very afraid that I would cross the line and uh, go from being a, an interested writer to, to um, uh, being a, a paparazzi <laughs> stalking her. And so I was, was not maybe as aggressive as I could have been. So I never got a chance to meet her, um, which I, I do regret. On the other hand, um, I can tell you she got married recently. Um, and uh, that by itself should be an indication that she seems to have done fairly well. Did she have subtle abnormalities, which are actually fairly common in, in people with um, a history of a cardiac arrest? She may have had some um, uh, subtle uh, problems with, say, memory. Um, but my guess is, from everything I've been able to hear about her and from the fact that she was able to get married and register at Macy's, um, she was probably doing pretty well. It is, it is remarkable to think that someone can be, you know, lifeless, essentially, for so long and still, you know, many, many years later, be a completely functional um, human being. So do we need to rethink our definition of death as sort of a continuum and start thinking about quality of life rather than degree of death? Well, there certainly are some people who are thinking about death as a continuum. Um, those are people like researchers at the Safra Center in Pittsburgh who are embarking now on a clinical trial that uh, replaces people's uh, cardiac arrest victims' uh, uh, blood with chilled fluid and chills those people down to somewhere close to 50 degrees, bringing them, if anything, closer to death in order to preserve their organs and, and brains so that then they can be revived. So there are people who really are both thinking about death as a continuum and really kind of pushing the bounds of, of what that definition could look like. And so there's also cases that you describe in which people are having, say, open heart surgery, where, you know, as part of the surgery, the, the surgeons actually stop the heart. Uh, so, of, of course, the person's vital signs show as if they are dead, and then somewhat efficiently later on, restart the heart. So I'd like to know a little bit more about how that works. And how are they able to then prevent the organ damage, um, you know, by pumping blood, perhaps some in some other way, uh, uh, to, to get these people to not actually suffer from brain death? 
Sure. There are actually there are two answers to that. Um, one, which is is fairly common, um, most patients who undergo significant heart surgery are put on bypass, um, which essentially takes the blood out of the person, um, puts it through a machine, oxygenates it, and then puts it back into the person. That's a, a gross oversimplification of a lot of complex technology, but that's that's pretty much what uh, what bypass does, um, and surgeons, cardiothoracic surgeons in particular, have been using that te- technique for a, a long time. And it's, it's, it's very, very effective in getting people through complex heart surgeries. What's more interesting to me, and where I spent uh, a lot of time both thinking and, and talking to researchers as part of this book, is what you can accomplish with a combination of bypass plus cold. Um, back in the 50s, uh, there was a surgeon named John Wary Dundee, who's Irish but practiced in, in uh, England, um, who was fascinated by the idea that if you could just use enough ice, you could reduce a patient's metabolism during surgery. You could sort of trick that person's body and brain into thinking that it was hibernating. Um, and that's a trick uh, because people don't hibernate. Uh, bears do, marmots do, squirrels do, even lemurs do, but people don't. But his theory was that if you put people under enough ice and chill them enough, you could induce a state of almost artificial hibernation in which their metabolism goes way down and their oxygen use goes way down. And in some of the more aggressive surgeries that are happening now, and I tell the story of of one man I spoke with who um, whose brain was without blood flow for almost an hour, um, which is by any account a long, long period of time. Um, but th- his surgeons were able to get him through that surgery because they chilled his brain, his head, um, down to, to rather low temperatures and they were able to reduce his brain's oxygen requirements. So that's actually to me one of the most interesting advances in the last 10 years. Bypass has been going on for a while, but the combination of bypass plus cold that tricks a brain and other organs into a state of hibernation, that's really neat. It is really interesting because of course, for most of us, the first reaction when you see someone who is very cold is to warm them up. You know, if they've, if they've, uh, if they have have hypothermia or, you know, in almost any illness, when a person's temperature drops, your, your first instinct is to throw a blanket over them. But do you think that when, if, if someone does have a heart attack, say in a movie theater, should we now rethink and, and actually try to cool them down somehow? Is that, is that going to be part of the sort of everyday practice of, of an, an additional step in CPR, for example? Well, it already is, actually. Um, most paramedics now, when they take care of cardiac arrest victims, will use a protocol to chill that person as they're being resuscitated. And the most common form of, of chilling involves uh, use of, of chilled, ice-cold saline that's pumped into a person. There are, though, a lot of other techniques which are on the horizon. One of my favorite uh, is called the rhino chill. R-H-I-N-O-C-H-I-L-L. Rhino is in nose. And the way it works is there, um, it uses a substance called perfluorocarbon that is a liquid with uh, a really low evaporation point. And so this liquid is pumped in and around uh, a person's nose. 
And in the back of your nasal passages is something called the cripperform plate, which is uh, a bony uh, layer that separates um, your sinuses from your brain. And the neat thing about the cripperform plate is that it's highly vascular. There's a lot of blood vessels running through it. And those blood vessels go back and forth between each side, um, the nose side and the brain side. And so if you can pump this perfluorocarbon around the cribriform plate, the perfluorocarbon evaporates and that evaporation cools the blood in the cribriform plate, which then cools the brain. It's, it's sort of like uh, what your dog does to cool off on a hot summer day by panting, only without hopefully all of the slobber on the, the kitchen floor. And so those sorts of techniques are um, now being uh, tried in clinical trials now to see whether those or other techniques could cool cardiac arrest victims very, very quickly. So let's talk about for a minute why this works. So just because your brain is cooled, how is that protective? Well, to some degree, nobody is quite sure. So the answer to that question descends pretty quickly into complex biochemistry. But the short answer is that by cooling cells, you decrease their metabolism. You decrease the rate at which they use some of the building blocks of energy, like adenosine triphosphate. Um, cells also reduce the rate at which they use oxygen. And so by reducing the metabolic rate of, of those cells, whether those cells are in your liver or in your big toe or in your brain, you can essentially trick the body into thinking that it's in a state of hibernation. And so the math turns out to be, at least in theory, hopefully pretty simple, that if you could reduce somebody's metabolism and their oxygen utilization by 50%, you can extend by more or less 50%, or in this case, 100%, the time that they can go without oxygen. And usually the, the figure that uh, people often use is somewhere between 5 and 15 minutes is without oxygen is when we really start getting worried about people losing their brain function. So just take 10 minutes as a, a rough average. Imagine that somebody normally would start to experience brain damage after 10 minutes of a, a cardiac arrest, which isn't that long. Most EMS response times are at least that long. But imagine if you could reduce somebody's metabolism by 50% and extend that window to 20 minutes or maybe even 30 minutes or an hour. That would buy that victim and his or her rescuers enough time to be able to put that person in a safe position, get them to a hospital, particularly for a victim of, of trauma or a gunshot wound or a soldier with a battlefield injury and a lot of blood loss. That would allow time to transport that person to some place where they could get the best possible care. Um, so there's interest in doing that through cold. They're interested in doing that through other drugs. And there's, there's hope out there, maybe for a wonder drug, a simple injection that will reduce somebody's metabolism by, by 99% and, and put victims in a state of suspended animation. Hmm. Essentially exactly the opposite of the epinephrine shot. Exactly. And I spent some time talking to uh, a world-renowned researcher who happens to be here, uh, as I am, at the University of Pennsylvania, um, an emergency room physician named Lance Becker, who's done a lot of the most interesting work out there on resuscitation. And um, his argument for a while has been that a lot of what we do in the setting of a cardiac arrest is really kind of stupid. He wouldn't actually use that phrase as an ER doc. 
But he points to a lot of the things that we do, like giving people epinephrine to try to get their heart started, uh, warming people up, giving drugs to increase people's blood pressure. And what he's saying really is that often when we do that, we're doing exactly what our bodies and our cells don't want us to do. I mean, our cells really want to shut down. They want to slow down. They want to use less oxygen. And we're forcing them to do exactly the opposite. And so is that what happens when animals are hibernating? And is it the same in, you know, mechanism across many different species of animals? Or is it very specific to a particular species? That's a great question. I actually made the mistake of asking that question of uh, a researcher named Peter Klopfer, uh, who's one of the founders of the the Duke Lemur Center down in Raleigh-Durham, North Carolina. Um, Peter Klopfer has been studying lemurs and lemur hibernation for a long time. Um, and he's very interested in, in hibernation um, because of its clinical implications, hoping that if we understand how hibernation works, um, eventually we could be more effective at tricking people into to entering a state of, of hibernation. And let me just interject and say that lemurs are the only primates that hibernate. That's why he's interested in lemurs. Is that correct? They are, that we know of so far. Um, there are certainly many other animals that do, but the hibernation of lemurs has been a, a fairly recent discovery. And so his argument has been that um, hibernation is not what evolutionary biologists call a conserved trait, meaning it's not something that we all do in exactly the same way. So um, it may look like a bear's hibernation looks like a marmot's hibernation, looks like a bird's hibernation. And as far as we know, the only bird that hibernates is a, a bird called the poor will. They may look the same, um, but Kloffer's argument is it's it's not a conserved trait, it's actually a convergent trait, meaning multiple animals hibernate in different ways. They may look the same. They may all have a reduced metabolism, decreased heart rate, decreased temperature, and decreased breathing, but they get to that point through very, very different ways. And so that's why he's very interested in studying primates, because he thinks if we can figure out how primates get to a state of hibernation, we also, as primates, would have the most to learn from from uh, our primate cousins, more to learn potentially than understanding how a bear or a marmot or a squirrel begins to hibernate. And is there a particular molecule that seems to trigger this hibernation mode in these animals? I mean, I can imagine it could you could think of a hormone, for example, that the body would release that then would tell the animal, okay, now it's time to go to sleep. Yeah, that's sort of the holy grail of, of hibernation. Um, the problem, though, is that what triggers hibernation in a lemur may not be the molecule that triggers hibernation in a marmot or a bear or, or a squirrel. In uh, lemurs, at least, one uh, molecule, it's actually a, a propeptide, a uh, small peptide, that uh, Klopfer and his group are interested in is called ghrelin, G-H-R-E-L-I-N. Um, which comes from the Indo-European uh, language root meaning to grow. And it's, it's a hormone that's associated with, um, for lack of a better way to describe it, appetite. So it makes you awake, alert, and hungry. And so you can imagine that uh, a hormone like that, um, which seems to be decreased in, in lemurs that are hibernating, there may be something about that decrease, a decreased drive to, to be awake and alert and, and eating, that might be part of the, the hibernation process. The problem, though, is that that's just an association. We don't really know whether that change in level is an after effect or whether it's causative. Um, we just don't know. 
Although it seems for a lot of humans, an appetite suppressant like that might be <laughs> remarkably, uh, you know, marketable. <laughs> it certainly could be. There are, though, other potential molecules. And, and one of the most exciting, maybe to me at least, is, is based on some research that I came across when I spent a day in the lab of Cheng Chi Li, who is a, a biologist working at um, University of Texas in, in Houston. And he studies uh, suspended animation, although he doesn't want to call it that. Uh, his concern is that if he, if word gets out that he studies suspended animation, he'll be besieged by by uh, folks interested in science fiction. He prefers the the term hypometabolism, but he's very interested in a molecule called adenosine monophosphate, um, which is a common molecule. It's one of the building blocks of adenosine diphosphate and triphosphate, the the sort of energy uh, currency of of our cells. Um, but he's beginning to think that adenosine monophosphate or, or AMP might be able to um, be almost a, a universal way across species of decreasing metabolism. So in other words, um, a way of decreasing metabolism producing suspended animation or hypometabolism, as, as Chang refers to it, um, that's independent of, of what species you, you come from. And he's done some research in mice, um, also research in, in other animals, dogs in particular. And so he's, he's very interested in, in that as an approach as well. So these directions sound very promising, but they also start to get close to the idea that we can just put ourselves on ice if we have a disease, say Alzheimer's, for example, for 50 years. And then when there's a cure, thaw ourselves back up uh, and, and fix the problem. So is there any hope that cryogenics or, or that kind of, you know, the science of, of freezing people for very long periods of time uh, might be advancing? Oh gosh, I I don't know. There are certainly a lot of people out there who uh, are very very optimistic about cryonics. I spent um, a very interesting weekend um, with a group of people at the Alcor conference um, down in Scottsdale in, in Arizona. A group of people who, uh, many of whom have invested uh, seventy thousand dollars to have their heads frozen or two hundred thousand dollars to have their bodies frozen in hopes of doing exactly what you just said, that in 50 years or 500, um, as science advances, they would be able to be revived and science would be good enough, medical science would be good enough to cure um, whatever whatever problem caused their death in the first place. The problem, though, is that it's really a bit of a gamble. I mean, if, if you decide to be frozen today, you're doing that basically without any um, past successes on your side. Um, nobody, to my knowledge at least, has been successfully uh, frozen and then thawed. Um, about the only examples we have of, of that success of cryonics are with very, very small pieces of people, uh, like heart valves or corneas. About the only uh, organisms that have been able to do this are some Arctic fish, um, and there's obviously a lot of difference between a whole person and an Arctic fish. Um, another example comes from the American wood frog, oddly enough, uh, that as part of its natural wintering process allows itself to freeze. Actually, it doesn't technically freeze. Freezing involves the formation of ice. It vitrifies. So it manages to drop itself down below the freezing point without uh, the formation of ice crystals that can be can be damaging to tissues. It, its heart stops, and for a period of anywhere from days to weeks, it'll stay in that position um, until it begins to warm up and it restarts its heart and hops merrily away. 
So there are enough examples like that out there um, in nature that make some people think it should be possible to freeze people. But as I said before, there's a huge difference between a little tiny frog and a very, very large person. And it's, it's still a huge gamble. And of course, some people might argue that frozen embryos constitute uh, potentially the idea that a life can be brought back. Although, you know, here we go um, into the murky definition of life. And so that's, that's a topic for a whole other show. Um, I don't really want to go there. But let me ask you, are there people, um, not embryos, who are frozen right now waiting to be woken up many years from now? Oh, sure. Um, in fact, I had a chance to go on a tour of the Alcor facilities in Scottsdale, Arizona, um, which are full of more than 100 people who have been frozen in liquid nitrogen, waiting, hopefully, until uh, science gets better. So there, there are those people out there who not only have agreed to have this done after they died, but have often paid a lot of money for, for that opportunity. So do you have a uh cryonics fund yourself? I do not. Um, and actually, many people don't. Many people who buy into cryonics uh, aren't necessarily wealthy. They uh, utilize life insurance, and they'll take out a life insurance policy, which then they will sign over to, to Alcor um, when, they, when they die. I have not done that. I, I did go through a, a process of um, initial discussion when I was at the Alcor conference because you know, when you're at the conference and they're trying to sign you up, it seemed only polite. But no, I, I did not do that. Um, I can think of a lot of other uh, charitable organizations that would probably um, be much more likely to use my $200,000 life insurance policy in a, in a productive way. It's a fascinating question, though, because in some ways, you know, there, there's almost like no loss, except, of course, the the money that potentially your your kin or your offspring or whoever you donate your life insurance money to um, would get because, you know, here's here's money that is not necessarily yours until you die. And, you know, what's the harm then um, if you can come back to life much later? But do people talk about sort of the what it might be like to come back uh, many, many years from now at these conferences and and sort of the the psychological implications of being in a completely different time? That's a great question. People do talk about it in ways that seem both uh, really intelligent and thoughtful, but also bizarre. There are, I'm told, uh, iPhone apps out there that will let you keep track or let somebody keep track of your stocks um, and how your stocks are doing when you're dead. Um, there are, there's a lot of discussion actually about finances. Um, it's, it's anybody's guess how much it would cost to maintain somebody and to revive somebody in 500 or a thousand years. Those are some of the discussion points that I, I heard most often, both in, in chat rooms and, and at the, the, the conference of cryonauts as they, they often refer to themselves. Um, it really is almost impossible to get your head around, uh, both the idea of coming back from the dead kind of where I get stuck. But even if you manage to get past that, the idea of coming back from the dead um, in a world that's wholly unfamiliar, often presumably with no financial resources and probably without any of your family members. And I think many people would say, well, gosh, I, I, that doesn't sound like a life to me. Um, yeah, it's a gamble. And in theory, there's no loss there because what's the alternative? But I, I think that possibility is scary enough to people, some people, that, that they wouldn't sign up. 
Yeah. And that sort of brings me to this whole question of people who actually don't want to be brought back to life, who sign orders not to be resuscitated. Um, and you as a person who works in hospice must face this all the time. So I wanted to delve a little bit into that issue, uh, you know, the cost of being resuscitated. And let's put aside the 500 years from now um, question and, and really focus on today. What are some of the costs that people pay physically and emotionally and financially of being resuscitated? Um, they're probably easier to deal with in exactly that order. So physical costs, I think one of the biggest costs, one of the biggest risks that I see is when people are brought back uh, successfully, meaning their hearts are restarted, and they even have enough uh, functional ability and good health to leave the hospital and go home. Um, the big cost and the risk that both I see and that I think my patients worry about is what if I have um, enough uh, damage to my brain or other organs so that I'm not able to think, I'm not able to take care of myself? What if I'm so bad I can't even recognize family members? What if I'm dependent on others? What happens if I'm brought back and I'm alive, but I'm not alive in a state that is meaningful to me? And that's that's a tough question. It's a question that each person has to decide for him or herself. I can talk with my patients about what that might look like. I can help them to make a decision for themselves. But ultimately, it's a question of, of what an adequate, good quality life looks like to them. And I think that's both in terms of, of physical and emotional costs. That's that's the cost that I hear most often from from my patients and families as they as they wrestle with this. And it's a very taboo subject, of course, especially if someone who is quite young and, and they haven't had a lot of time to, you know, think about death and, and what's going to happen to their family and, and loved ones after they die. Um, you know, I think that's one of the major arguments for why, you know, hospice should be something that is more prevalent in, in the medical industry and not just people being resuscitated and being kept on alive in machines in, in hospitals. Um, so how do you talk to your patients and, and how do you counsel people to have these difficult conversations when they're still well enough to make informed decisions? My best advice usually is to simply dive in and have these conversations. There are certainly living will documents that you can complete, some better than others. One of my favorites is is the Five Wishes document. It's available online at, at either free or at very little charge. And it, it's it's one document that that takes people through a series of questions that gets the conversation started. That's often the easiest way, I think, for um, for some of my patients and families to have these discussions. But I think that's that's the key, beginning to have these discussions. I often joke with some of my patients that around the time of the holidays, um, uh, Thanksgiving, Christmas, um, other holidays where family members are all getting together, that's actually also a really good time to start having these conversations. Um, to uh, begin having the conversation, but also to keep it light. And that's, I think, the other point that I, I try to convey to my patients. This isn't about something that will happen tomorrow. This isn't about um, your father, mother, brother dying tomorrow. It's an insurance policy, almost. This is what I want you guys to do for me if at some point tomorrow or 20 years from now, I can't make decisions for myself if it should happen. And I guess the last piece of advice that I often tell my patients that they should really complete an advanced directive, a living will, they should make their preferences known, not necessarily for them, but for their family members. Um, and I often tell them stories about patients I've taken care of 
who had multiple family members. One daughter thought that her father should be kept alive at all costs. The other daughter thought that her father would want comfort care. And that leads to disagreements and fights among family members during a time at which they really shouldn't be fighting. And so I'll tell my patients, fine, you don't care what happens to you. I get that. You don't have strong preferences. That's fine. Um, but give your family enough guidance so that they don't wind up spending your last days and some of their last days together fighting and arguing. If you don't want to do it for yourself, do it for them. I think that's really excellent advice because I think you're you're exactly right that some of the most difficult aspects of grieving are these decisions that you have to make. Uh, and sometimes even before the person has passed away about to what extent do you extend their life depending on its quality. But how... How well do we know now? I mean, of course, there's there's always this fear that you're going to put an advance directive, a DNR, you know, don't don't resuscitate. I don't want to be on the ventilator, etc. Um, but that when you get there, the decision is going to be a lot murkier than that. That the doc might say, look, you know, we we might have some some loss of function, but ultimately the person is still going to be, you know, ha- have have an X amount of, of ability. So, you know, right now we have to make these decisions that are going to affect very much our future. So how good is the science in terms of being able to predict the conditions under which a person will have a certain quality of life? It's a tough question. And the answer to that question, unfortunately, depends to some degree on on what else is going on with that person. Um, and to some degree, where a cardiac arrest is likely to happen. So, uh, for instance, an older adult um, with multiple chronic medical conditions like emphysema, coronary artery disease, and diabetes living in a nursing home, that person's chances of being revived successfully in the setting of a cardiac arrest successfully meaning going to the hospital and being discharged from the hospital is, depending on which studies you listen to, somewhere between 0 and 2%. But it's very, very small. And so if we're talking about somebody in those circumstances living in a nursing home, I'm usually pretty open about those numbers. Um, I don't try to browbeat people into refusing CPR. If, if that 1 in 100 or 2 in 100 chance is worth it to them, um, well, that's that's fair enough, but um, they should know what those chances are. I think where it gets tough and where, frankly, advanced directives are not so useful is in people who are young and otherwise healthy. Because in somebody who's, say, 35 years old, no medical problems, um, filling out an advanced directive for that person can be difficult. And the advanced directive itself can be less useful because you don't really know what you're dealing with. What condition might put that person in a situation where the advanced directive would be needed for guidance. That's the challenge. Although still, even if the science is not perfect, even if we don't know what likely outcomes are, often advanced directives are useful for two reasons. One, the best advanced directives tell people at least who you want to make decisions for you. Um, So you can cut through a lot of misery in a family simply by saying, look, I've got four daughters, I've got 18 grandchildren, um, I've got three sons, this is the person I want to make decisions for me. So I'll ask her to ask you all what you think, but she's the decision maker. You can save the family a whole lot of angst simply by identifying that decision maker. And then second, by giving people some guidance about what's important to you. If staying alive at all costs really is important, well, then you can tell people in that advanced directive, and then they can factor that into decisions. You don't have to have a a perfect sense of what's going to happen with 100% certainty. 
but just talking about the kinds of things in that advanced directive about what's important to you. Is it staying alive at all costs? Is it maintaining your dignity? Is it living at home? Giving people some sense of what's important to you without numbers could be really, really useful. So this is a difficult topic, of course, because it's something that we all are all going to have to face and it still remains taboo. But it sounds like you've got some ideas of how to start that conversation. But in your book, you also use a lot of humor, which I really appreciate. I mean, I, I actually had a difficult week myself personally, because one of my dear friends passed away. And so the thought of reading, spending the weekend reading a book about death was, you know, not something that I was jumping into with gusto. But Several times in your book, you made me laugh out loud. And in some ways, laughter really is the best medicine. So I wanted to end with one of the topics that you discussed that is not only funny, but also has some science to back up why it might be effective. And that is that, you know, a couple hundred years ago, there was at least one society in Europe that used a kind of unconventional method to try to revive someone from the dead. And that is essentially blowing smoke up their ass. So can you talk a little bit about how that might work and how it was used? Um, well, that's certainly one way to, to frame it. Um, and if I could back up just for a second, um, I'm, I'm very sorry about your loss and, and your friend. Um, uh, and I, I really did try to write this book, uh, keeping it light and humorous. Um, a couple of years ago, I wrote a previous book that was published by Simon and Schuster um, about the the choices that people make near the end of life, and it was called Last Acts of All Things. Um, and it was a great book. I'm I'm really quite proud of it. But it was so explicitly about death that the people who were willing to pick it up were those people who were already very very comfortable thinking about these sorts of issues about death and end-of-life care. And I, I really hoped that this book would be different and broader, that I could get people laughing. I could get people picking up the book who don't spend all of their time thinking about um, these sorts of, of issues. So I'm, I'm pleased and gratified that I made you laugh at least some. And I'm not surprised that that, that particular example <laughs> was one of the things that, that made you laugh. Um, the theory behind it is that nicotine in tobacco smoke, when you think about what happens when you take a couple of puffs on a cigarette, um, your heart rate increases. And I think this is back in the 18th century, people had enough experience with tobacco to notice this. And they thought that if somebody had drowned, if their uh, heart rate was very, very slow, as, as often happens as, as part of the, the drowning reflex, um, that something that would increase their heart rate might be therapeutic. And so um, they developed all sorts of, of techniques of blowing smoke into various orifices um, with the assistance of bellows and animal bladders and all sorts of other things that are really, I think, probably better left to the imagination. As to whether it worked, I'm not really sure. In theory, I suppose it could have. Um, but that's that's one resuscitation technique that's pretty much been confined to the the dustbins of history, which I I actually find kind of disappointing. I think um, arriving at a, a code blue uh, at the setting of a cardiac arrest would be very different now if uh, the paramedics could show up and one paramedic would jump out of the ambulance and the other would jump out of the other side and pull from his waistcoat pocket a pipe and start the procedure of tamping and lighting and puffing away. I think as a crowd pleaser, if nothing else, it would be a, a big hit. But alas, um, pipes and, and blowing smoke seem to have, have disappeared. 
I would argue that, that the crowd-pleasing aspect might come once the smoke is being blown up orifices, but I'll leave that to opinion. Thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds, David Cassaret. Thanks so much. This is really fun. So a great interview, and I am digging this hibernation idea. You don't say it in the interview, but I mean, come on, don't we need this for interstellar travel? Well, yeah, I mean, I think there's a lot of options for the future use of hibernation, and obviously we're not quite there yet. But I do think it's exciting to think that you could possibly in the future take a pill, some kind of peptide that could put you in hibernating mode. I mean, it seems possible, and that's pretty cool. Yeah, no, totally. I mean, I want to see what the world is like in 100 years. Or do I you? I mean, be- you'll be poor <laughs> and you'll have no idea of what's going on. Well, there um, will be people who want to do that. Uh, <laughs> there will be if it really works. There already are. I'm sure, you know, all those uh, cryonics people who sign up for Alcor that he talked yeah. about, you know, they're they're paying hundreds of thousands of dollars to do this. Yeah. So I'm more interested in the astronauts than the cryonauts. <laughs> well, they might be one and the same in the future. So... That's it for another episode, and I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. You can find us online at motherjones.com slash inquiringminds, or on Twitter at Inquiring Show, on Facebook at slash Podcast, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, stock tips, recipes, or anything else to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org. Uh, let me say that emails to that address might possibly be discussed on the air. Fair warning. I want to also let you know again that this episode of Inquiring Minds is sponsored by Audible.com, a leading provider of spoken audio information and entertainment with over 150,000 titles that you can choose from. And exclusively for listeners to this episode, Audible has a great offer, a free audiobook, completely free. You just have to go to this URL to get it, audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Once again, that's audiblepodcast.com slash inquiringminds. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, Wired, and The Huffington Post. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan, and we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. America.